So uh, <clears throat> this morning, as the lights, can we get the lights turned up? Thanks, because I want to be able to see everybody. Uh, I'm going to be reading from a, uh, in a few moments, a letter from, that Paul wrote to the Philippian church. And it is by far the most pastoral letter that Paul wrote, I would, I would say. And I wanted, uh, I just think that this is going to be a little less preaching and more me just talking and sharing uh, what I think is important for us as a community of faith to, to know. Uh, as I was trying to come up with how to begin the message, I uh, was looking through Twitter and found a, a, um, a tweet that someone put up and it, it resonated with me. And I thought, you know, I think that's what I can use to start the message. And so it's not on the screen because I found it yesterday. It's someone was quoting Madeline Langle, who is an author, Christian author, and she wrote, we do not bring people, and she wrote this decades ago, we do not bring people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right they are. And there's more to it, but that first part is what caught my attention because I feel like we're in this culture of everybody shouting at everybody. And if it seems that people believe that if you want to be heard, you have to shout louder and with more anger. And the louder you shout, the righter you must be. And so we're shouting our beliefs and discrediting other people's beliefs and announcing wrongness and claiming rightness and civility and conversation seems to be gone in our culture. And so she says, we do not bring people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are. And then she goes on and says, but by showing them a light that is so lovely. By showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. That there is a way for us to live our lives that is so irresistible that people would be drawn to it. And so what does it look like to show a light that is so lovely that they want all their hearts to know the source of it? So we begin this new series, and one of the comments that I've noted right away is that the faith of the first century church is different than the faith of the church today. That the faith of the first century was this illegal faith that was thought by some to be a cult, and yet it found a way to take over a region and even take over the world. And so Paul, this first century missionary traveled to the city of Philippi, and while there he encountered at least three people who had transformational moments with Jesus. And so I wanted to read that to you. It's not up on the screen as well. Yeah, it's not up on the screen. It's not supposed to be. I do this to poor Hannah every time. She's back there going, I hate Pastor Rick. 
It's not on the screen, Hannah, don't worry. I want to read to you from Acts. I even brought my Bible. That's how you know it's not on the screen. I was going to tell the story, and then I thought um, Luke, who wrote Acts, did a much better job than me telling it. So I want to read it to you. So Luke is retelling the story of, of, uh, of his journey with Paul, and they arrive in Philippi. It's in Acts chapter 16. It says, on the Sabbath, so it was a Saturday because they're Jewish, on the Sabbath we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we supposed that some people met for prayer and we sat down to speak with some women who had come together. Now this is what's so fascinating. This is a city that has no Christian, there's no one in the city who's Christian yet. Not a single person. And Paul and Luke show up and they say, well, let's go down to the river because there's probably some people who are worshiping. They're worshiping uh, uh, Yahweh, but let's go down and see them. And so they arrive and they speak with some women who have come together. And then Paul says, one of them was Lydia, a merchant of expensive purple cloth. And so Lydia is this successful businesswoman in the first century. What must that have been like? A woman in business and she's a seller of expensive purple cloth. And it turns out she was a worshiper of God. She's a Jewish person. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. She was baptized along with other members of her household, and she asked us to be her guest. And so she becomes the first convert to Christ in this new in this city in Philippi. She's the very first Christian in Philippi. Then Luke goes on and says that one day, so they continue to spend time in, in, in this city. It says, one day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller, her, fortune teller who earned a lot of money for her masters. She followed along behind us and she was shouting. So here's this young girl who is not in the employment of, she is a slave and is uh, used and uh, because of her demon possession has spiritual forces at work inside her and she can tell fortunes. And so she is walking behind Paul as he's walking through the city and she's saying, these men are servants of the Most High God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. And she did this over and over again, Luke says. This went on day after day. And this is one of those interesting stories. She went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated. Why is he exasperated? This, this girl's driving him crazy. Every day she's shouting at him. That he turned and spoke to the demon within her and he said, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And instantly it left her. As far as we know, this is the second convert in Philippi. So now we have a businesswoman and a formerly possessed girl. Verse 19, her master's hopes of wealth are now shattered. All right, because they were making money off this girl. 
And so they grabbed Paul and Silas and they dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in an uproar because of these Jews. They're teaching the people to do things that are against Roman customs. A mob quickly formed against them and the city officials ordered them stripped, beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they don't escape, so he took no chances and put them in the inner dungeon and then clamped their feet in the stocks. It's turned into a bad day, you would think, right? Verse 25, though, says this. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I wrote in the side of my Bible, in all of their mess, they chose to bring it to Jesus anyway. They've been beaten and bruised and bloodied, and they're wrapped in stocks, and they sang hymns. And then it says, suddenly there was a great earthquake and the prison was shaken to its foundations and all the doors flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. And the jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Because instead of dealing with the embarrassment of allowing the whole prison to escape, or to deal with the fact that he would be responsible for these prisoners that have left, I wonder, his guard, he is ready to kill himself. But Paul shouts, don't do it. We're all here. Trembling with fear, the jailer called for the lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Convert number three. So Paul walks into the city of Philippi. There are no people who are following Jesus. He meets a businesswoman, has a conversation with her. He meets a demon-possessed girl. He casts out a demon. And then he meets a jailer under difficult circumstances. And it says the jailer and his whole household come to faith. So then years later, Paul writes a letter to the church in Philippi. Now, this is the same church that started when a businesswoman and a, demon, a formerly demon-possessed girl and a guard are converted. And their families, that's the beginning of the campus in Philippi. And Paul writes this. I said, it's his most personal letter he wrote ever. He says, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. Now, decades have gone by, and now there's not just Lydia and a formerly demon-possessed girl and a guard. Now there's a church that's gathered, a church of men and women of faith, so much so that they have to now have church leaders and deacons. And then Paul says this, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. And this is what I want you to hear. 
for I want you to understand what really matters. I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives. So this series, kind of the question that we're asking in this series is, what if being religious is not all it's cracked up to be? What if being religious was never the intention that Jesus had for us? And so we want to look at what really matters. When we start to look at things from a different perspective, maybe there's a whole new world out there for us. So part of the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, there's some important background I need to share with you before we get to that. And Hannah, we're going to get to those scriptures, I promise, is that Paul is angry with folks they were named the Judaizers. Now, Judaizers were those who were Jewish. They were Jewish descent. They practiced Jewish religion, and they chose to take the Christian religion or following Jesus and add it on to their Jewish faith. So they were Jewish in tradition uh, and history, and they, are, and, and they follow Jewish faith, and they added Christianity or following Christ onto it, and they became Judaizers. They believed that to become a Christ follower, you had to become a Jew first. So they believed that Jesus and, and Jesus' uh, uh, salvation was only for Jews, and so that means you had to become a Jew first, so then you become a Christian. And so they were telling people that you had to practice all of the Jewish faith so that you could then follow Jesus. And so including circumcision. And so men who were not circumcised, who had not been Jewish, were had to go through full... Do you understand where I'm going with this, right? Okay, we got it, all right. And so he calls them a few things. Now, Paul is really angry. He calls them dogs. This is in chapter 3. I'm not going to read these verses. He calls them dogs. He calls them wicked men. He calls them evil doers. And he then calls them mutilators. You get why he calls them mutilators, right? So he calls them all those things. And really, why is he so angry? Because they have created some religious hoops that they believe people have to jump through. And so they said, this is what you have to do if you're going to follow Jesus. You can follow Jesus, but first you have to become Jew. And then you have to go through all the Jewish rituals to remain a Jew, and then you can follow Jesus. So they created hoops for people to jump through. They were adding Jesus to their Old Testament religion is what they were doing. And so in chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul is angry with these people, and he doesn't want them to do this. And so he says, be careful of them. Be careful of these dogs. Be careful of these wicked men and evildoers. Be careful of these mutilators. And then we pick up in the middle of a sentence. It's up on the screen. It says, though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. And so Paul, he he wants to make this case before he, he's not just going to say, hey, don't follow the Judaizers. He's making a case first saying, I could have been one of them. He goes on to talk about that. I am the best. He says, I'm the best example of religious life. 
I'm the best example of it. Now, we have to go back a step to Old Testament uh, 101, and let me just share a quick couple things about that, is that the tabernacle in ancient times was an important place. During the Exodus, when the Israelites left Egypt, uh, one of the first things that happened is that Moses brought down the Ten Commandments, right? You've all seen that in the movies. And, uh, and after he did that, one of the things that was established was the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a tent it was made with uh, all different kinds of soft materials, right? Animal skins and those sort of things. And it was meant to be portable. And they, the, the Israelites would move from camp to camp. And as they moved, they'd pack up everything in the tabernacle and bring it with them. Because the tabernacle represented God and God's presence. And God and the tabernacle was always put in the center of the camp so that it was a message to all the Israelites that God dwelt in the middle with us. God was right there with us. Now, later on, uh, the Israelites become a nation, the nation of Israel, and they begin building cities, and, and David came into power, and they had, they had kings. And then David decided, it was David's idea to you know, I'm living in this nice palace and God is still in this tabernacle. And here's the interesting thing about the tabernacle. Because it was made with soft materials like animal skins and those kinds of stuff, it had constant upkeep because things like that wear out. And so David says, why don't we just build God a really nice palace like mine? And so they built a temple. And it was this beautiful, massive temple built by Solomon, David's son. The temple was not God's idea because God didn't want to be contained in a box, but the Israelites now placed God in a box. And God had been when the Israelites were traveling in the midst, but now God was in a box, in a temple, in a separate place. And so they kind of put God off to the side in a sense. And with the building of the temple, the Israelites began to create a religious system. And so now there were rules and regulations that were followed. And you were identified by your depth of spirituality was measured by how you kept the commandments. And so before, while the tabernacle represented God in the midst of the people, now following rules and regulations became how I identified that God was with me. So by keeping rules, by keeping regulations, by fulfilling laws, I became holy. And the more laws I fulfilled, the holier I would become. And religious activity became the priority. So Paul wants the Philippian church to know, I've been there. I've done that. And I've done it perfectly. Now, I know we could easily say, yeah, yeah that's, those ancient people were so foolish back then. But yet, I believe in the 21st century, we follow something very similar. It's actually two sides to the same coin. For some of us, maybe you grew up in a legalist tradition. I've told you about my grandmom's stories about you didn't go to the movies, you didn't play cards on Sundays. 
because that was God's day. You don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't hang out with people that do. And the church and those people who practice that have become do-nothing churches, right? And many people have grown up in do-nothing churches filled with don'ts, right? Hiding from the world, hoping to be safe and to remain pure and to be blameless and, and doing nothing because there's fear that if I do something, it may be the wrong thing. And there's this list of illegal activities that I'm not to participate in. And it became a church filled with irrelevance because it became so separated from the world. And we could look at that and say, yeah, those people are so foolish doing those things, that legalist mindset. But yet the other side to the same coin is that there are others of us who have grown up and we believe that God might just be angry with us. I have to do something to make myself right with God. I have to clean myself up before I can come back to God. Because what I was doing before and what I was not not doing before, and I have to clean myself up now or make myself better, I have to make myself presentable to God. That's really the same coin. It's just the other side. I've done so many bad things in my life, God must be angry with me, or at best, God is disgusted by me. And so we've created a religious lifestyle of doing and not doing. Similar to this Old Testament system, except we just don't have animal sacrifices. So we have the same attitude towards God, though, that we have to work really hard at making God love us. So Paul, back to Paul, he says that, um, look, I've done this perfectly. And then he goes on and explains how. He says this, it's up on the screen. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. That was the proper age for a Jewish boy to be circumcised, eight days old. I, will, I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. All right, So he can trace his lineage. And a member of the tribe of Benjamin, that, was actually the, that is the favored tribe in Israel. And a real Hebrew, if ever there was one. And what that translates as really is he was basically fluent in the Hebrew language. He was fluent in Hebrew attitudes. And he was fluent in Hebrew tradition. This guy was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Then he goes on and says, I was a member of the Pharisees. So now he's moving from credentials to credits. He's saying, hey, look, I worked really hard. I became a Pharisee, who demand the strictest obedience in the Jewish laws. Basically, he's saying, I did, I not only practiced these 600 laws, I did them meticulously. I was so zealous, as a matter of fact, he says, that I harshly persecuted the church because it was felt that the Christian faith was a cult that was dam doing damage to Jewish faith. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Perfect. This guy was perfect religiously. He had no fault 
as a Jew. He claims that from his birth, he's been a God-fearing, law-observing Jew, that his lineage was as pure as Jewish lineage could be, and that he belonged to the most aristocratic tribe of the Jews. He says, if anyone has an idea of how to lead a perfectly religious life, it's me, Paul, I know how to do it. And so he's just called all those Judaizers dogs and evildoers because they're taking the Jewish laws and saying you have to follow these perfectly. You have to jump through all the religious hoops before you can follow Jesus. And he says, hey, just so you know, I'm not saying this because I can't do that. I've done that. I've done it all. I've done it perfectly. I haven't messed up. I'm faultless as a Jew. And then he says this up on the screen. I once thought these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. And we miss some of this here because this is, this is the English translation. In, in the Greek, he has some really neat things. What he's doing here is he's, he's basically creating a profit and a loss column, the pros and the cons. And he's saying, he's saying I measure both of these. I put them up on the screen. And, 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 and I put it in an Excel spreadsheet. And here's what came out. That's really what he's using the accounting terms, okay? He says, I once thought these things were valuable on the pro side, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless. Same word. When compared with the infinite value, see that word value again. So he's got value and worth are worthless on both sides. When compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, Really not the word he used. That's the church word, all right? What he really says is the... He says dog crap. Okay? It's translated refuse other times or what you would throw to dogs or crap, okay? That's the word he uses. And he says, I put it all in a column. I had all this religious pedigree. All lined up, everything was going in order. And when I got to the bottom, when it added up... It was crap. And then I added up this side. It's a value. But I thought all this stuff was a value, and it wasn't. So what was it? So that I could gain Christ and become one with Him. Following a religious lifestyle, there can be a lot in the column, but it adds up to a pile of crap. Following Jesus, the column seems empty because shouldn't I have to work for this? Shouldn't I have to earn this? Shouldn't I? I've got to make right for what I've done wrong and it's, I've got nothing in the column, but yet I still gain Christ. No amount of law keeping, not self-improvement, not more discipline, not religious effort, not a longer list of do's and don'ts, but I still gain a relationship with Jesus. And then he goes on and says this, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. Well, wait a minute. We're getting into perfection here. Anybody here want to claim to be perfect? But I press on to possess that perfection. Oh, he said it again for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. How can we expect to be perfect? I love chapter 3 of Philippians. These verses 
have been, uh, like if I were to embroider, don't, please don't have me give me this for a gift. <laughs> These would be the verses though, right? You know, I talk about like there are certain pages, if I could just, if I only get one page out of the Bible, this is one of those I would say, I would take chapter three of Philippians. That word perfection there, the word perfect that Paul uses is the word teleos. Teleos does not mean perfect as without error, all right? Like a 100% on a test, that's perfect, right? That's not the word that Paul's using. He uses the word teleos. The word teleos would be used this way. It means, um, the King James Version actually used, uh, translates it fulfilled. So he says, I don't mean to say that I have achieved uh, already achieved these things, or that I have already been fulfilled, reached fulfillment. This is the best way for me to explain the word teleos or perfect in this sense. If I had a nail that needed to be driven into a board, what tool would you recommend I use? Hammer. A hammer, okay? And you would say a hammer is perfect for that job. Does it mean it's a perfect hammer? It means it's made for that assignment. If I were to use a screwdriver to put the nail into the board, could I possibly do it? Depending on the denseness of the wood, the type of nail, I could possibly use the handle end. There's a way to do it, possibly. And I would then say that the screwdriver is not the perfect tool for the job. All right? That's the word that Paul uses. He's saying it's the perfect tool when it's used for its intended purpose. So he says, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection or that I have found what I'm created to be and do. But I, I press on to possess that perfection, that fulfillment, that intended purpose. And then he goes on and says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Remember where it started? What really matters? Here's the one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Jesus Christ, is calling us. The first century church grew exponentially. They did not have the written Bible with them. They didn't have, they didn't have church buildings. They didn't even have a portable church system. They weren't even legitimate, legalized church organization, but yet they grew exponentially. What did they have? They had a faith that believed that you could forget your past and you could gain the future. They had a faith that believed that even though the column is empty, I can still gain Christ. They had a faith that believed that all the religious activity leads to a pile of crap, but I can come to Jesus with nothing in my hands, nothing in my pockets. I can just come to him and say, God, I am a mess. I've, got, um, I've created a mess, and I can come and receive Jesus, who will love me, who will forgive me, who will for lead me to forget my past and move towards the future. That's what they had in their favor. And the church grew exponentially. 
they had this life-giving message of Jesus. And it changed the world. Now, we do lots of events and lots of activities, especially here at this campus, right? Where I'm constantly asking you folks to do things, right? I'm going to ask you again. Before we're done, I'm going to ask you again. See, we, we do this, really, and I want you to make sure you know, we do this for three, I would say three reasons. The first is to make connections with people, all right? We want to make connections with people. The second is we want to make the name Hope recognizable in the community. And the third reason is we want to create easy invites. Please don't misunderstand our purpose because of this strategy. While we host and attend events like Trunk or Treat, we do that for those reasons that I mentioned. We want to make connections with people. We want the name of hope to be recognizable in the community, and we want to create easy invites. And we need you to sign up for Trunk or Treat. It's this Friday, trunk or, uh, meethope.org forward slash trunk. It's a two-hour time slot. We need you to be there. There's 2,000 people who will be there, little kids. We are passing out pumpkins, and we are passing out candy. It'll be a wonderful event, and people need to meet you, and we need you to be there. Please sign up, because our goal is for people to experience the life-giving message of Jesus. Now, the guy who, who talked about the old, living the Old Testament perfectly, Paul, the guy that talked about forgetting our past and moving towards the future, he said the same thing a little bit differently to another church in Corinthians. I'm going to wrap up with this. It's up on the screen. He said this, the same guy. He said, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a what kind of person? New person. The old life is gone and the new life has begun. See, it's the same thing. It's past, present, future, right? It's gone and now it's begun. And get this, this is where I think we miss sometimes as a church. This isn't a recycled life. This isn't a, I'm going to get my life back in order. It's a brand new life. See, I think that's what the church is missing. We think it's, it's not self-help. It's, it, that's all good stuff. That's not what we're trying to do, though. We're trying to convince people that they could have a brand new life. Their old life is gone. And a new life is possible. That transformation can take place. I think that's what was so irresistible about, irresistible about the church in the first century. That there was this first century business owner named Lydia, a former demon-possessed girl and a soldier and their families got together. And they said, we met people who told us about Jesus and our lives were changed. Lydia's story would be that I was... I was worshiping and I had a conversation and because of that conversation my life has changed I met Jesus my old life is gone I have a brand new life the formerly demon possessed girl would say I had something taking over my body 
And then instantly it was gone. And now I had Jesus. The soldier story is that I was about to kill myself because I thought I had failed miserably. But some prisoners told me about Jesus. Each of them told the story about their lives being transformed and being changed. Old lives gone, old lives gone, and new lives lived. It's not about passing out pumpkins. It's not about giving kids candy. But that is the door we choose to walk through. Because there are men and women who are living in this world and they believe all the, the shouting and the, and, the, and the anger. But what if they saw, how did Madeline say it? What if they saw a light that was so lovely that they want with all their heart to know the source of it? And what if we could tell them that it was a transformation that took place in our hearts? That when we met Jesus, it changed us. Will you stand with me for closing prayer? So God, I thank you for the men and women in this room. I thank you, God, for their faith stories. And God, there are stories here that are as dynamic and as exciting as Lydia's and as, and as the girl's and as the soldier. And God, I pray that uh, we would be able to tell those stories of faith. God, that we would encourage each other with those stories, but God, we'd also be inspiring others as well. God, I pray that we would have, um, we would have an influence on this community. God, that they would see that we're Church is not about religious activity, but it's about this incredible relationship with you that you choose to forgive us and God, we can live new lives. God, I pray that that would impact the world around us, our neighborhoods, our towns, our workplaces. God, our world is desperate to hear that life-giving message. And God, I pray that we would be inspired and challenged to give it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have a great day.